0: we need to sort of minimize the harm we need to sort of we're racing in a car towards a cliff edge with our foot on the accelerator we need to take a foot off the accelerator and start to hit the brakes
1: well hey there it's me chance and you're about to listen to our discussion with dr laurie adkin and dr christopher wright on the subject of how free market capitalism gets in the way of addressing global climate change dr adkin is from the department of political science and environmental studies at the university of alberta in canada who's authored several books on climate change and capitalism such as Regime of Obstruction, How Corporate Power Blocks Energy Democracy. Dr. Wright is from the University of Sydney Business School in Australia and author of Climate Change, Capitalism and Corporations, Processes of Creative Self-Destruction. Next week, we're going to lighten it up a little bit. Inspired by George Carlin's list of people who ought to be killed, we're going to make our own list called The Worst Kind of People. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and listen to us at SoundCloud, iTunes, YouTube, and eventually Spotify. If you want to show your appreciation and support for our work and what goes into making this possible, please do so by rating and reviewing us on iTunes and Spotify. And finally, please check us out at punk-journalism.com. I was, a little bit, I was a little bit shocked, Lori, when I came on. I wasn't expecting you to be here already. I, was, I wasn't even wearing a shirt. <laughs> so I shut it off quick. I feel that this is probably the most important topic that needs to be discussed politically, globally, socially, environmentally, and as far as human rights are concerned. Yet all too often it seems to fly under the radar. The overwhelming consensus among the scientific community is that climate change is a dire issue that needs to be addressed, and by not doing so and remaining complacent and doing things the way we've always done them, we'll continue to spiral until it gets more and more unlikely that we can pull ourselves out of this hole that we've dug. A few years ago, I spoke with a climate scientist from Colorado State, Dr. Scott Denning, to discuss climate change, what part people have played in it, and how we might go about making changes. When I tried to have the conversation with him about why he thinks our culture, both nationally and globally, still consists of so many people who deny the truth behind man-made climate change, he respectfully said that he wasn't qualified to address that on a professional level. So that's the conversation that I'd like to have with Doctors Lori Adkin and Christopher Wright today. Now, there are many social and political issues that are heavily discussed, I think, because they don't require the same kind of work that addressing climate change presents. Conceding to the fact that our negative impact on the environment has to do with what we've grown accustomed to as a species means also having to step way outside of our comfort zones, especially when our economic model is so dependent upon constant consumption and outward growth in a finite space. Being dependent upon industry and consumption means that in order to address this problem, we'll always have to admit that our way of life as we know it will have to change pretty drastically, isn't it? I guess my first question that I'll ask you both is, isn't this also a reason why climate change is so aggressively denied? Because admitting that it's a problem means that we also have to cut in the pockets of industry and change our lifestyles pretty drastically.
0: I would I would totally agree with that, because in a sense, um, climate change, human-induced climate disruption, to give it a more precise name, um, to get around that sort of issue... Is the product of two centuries of industrialization, more than two centuries of industrialization based on fossil fuel energy. So uh, our, our whole global economy um, predicated on compound economic growth ad infinitum is based on coal, oil, and gas energy. And so we're having to reinvent two centuries of capitalist development, probably within a decade or so. And we we I keep saying we, but you know, the corporate and political elites that have delivered this model, and there's been a lot of benefits from it. Um, are fighting tooth and nail to prevent any engagement with the the fundamental political changes needed there Um, because it threatens vested interests. Uh, It threatens big oil companies and big coal companies and big gas companies. And they are some of the most powerful um, economic and political entities on the planet. What what
2: would you say
1: about that, Laurie?
2: Yeah, I fully uh, agree agree with that. Um, You know, Chris is speaking from the heart of big coal and I'm speaking from the heart of the oil sands, right? And certainly we see up close um, the power of corporate interest in obstructing governmental action on climate change. Uh, but to go back to your initial question, I guess I would want to ask in response also, you know, where is the denial coming from and um, what is producing it? What is the resistance? What's the, the source of the resistance? So I don't think it's necessarily um, everyone who's you know struggling with this in the same way. I think that in different parts of the world, um, based on class and gender and race, we are all responding to this crisis in different ways. And um, you know we need to really pinpoint where the the strongest resistance is coming from
0: and where I'd, i'd suggest that's that's been you know reasonably well documented in the the creation of a sort of a climate change denial industry primarily in the united states but now globally and we have it in australia and you have it in canada um and it's evident in europe where the big fossil fuel majors and it's been well documented exxon in particular you know knew what its products were doing back in the late 70s early 80s and Its internal scientists were producing estimates of where the atmospheric carbon emission, uh, carbon concentrations would be by 2020. And they hit it bang on the head. It was 415 parts per million. And that's where we are today. So they knew 40 years ago what uh, the continued consumption of coal, oil and gas would do to the planet. And yet Exxon and other major oil companies pushed that research back into the, the bottom drawer and invested tens of millions of dollars in orchestrated climate denial in the political arena. Uh, and we see that in australia canada the u s elsewhere, where the major political parties are to some extent wholly unsubsidiaries subsidiaries of the fossil fuel sector
1: before we get too far into the conversation would you would you each speak about your specific research?
0: yeah, so uh I've been studying climate change for about twenty years now as a political and economic phenomenon, and our research has sort of focused on um both the sort of the major corporations. Uh, in Australia and globally, uh, it's been very much a focus on sort of corporate responses to the climate crisis at a political and economic level and how they've engaged in strategies internally in their um, in their responses to climate impacts, but also politically at a sort of a higher level, how they've engaged politically in shaping the politics of climate change and pushing back against, for instance, proposals for carbon pricing or the promotion of renewable energy. And so most of my research has been focused on a political economy of how um, vested interests, large multinational corporations in the industrial and energy sector have basically framed the politics around climate change and led us to the position where we, are, we now are you know, 30 years too late to the issue, in a sense.
1: Okay.
2: Sorry, I accidentally clicked on the oh, that's <laughs> button okay. there. No, Accident. no problem. So, yeah, um, so interesting. Yeah, my uh, research is really from the point of view of a political economist as well. Uh, so I often say to people who, who ask me questions that I'm a, I'm a political economist of climate policy and environmental policy. Uh, and, uh, you know, so some of the... My focus has been uh, also on, on the role of, of corporations and their associations, industry associations, in influencing governments, uh, particularly at the Canadian level and uh, in Alberta over the last 20, 30 years um, on on uh, climate policy. And so I've also worked on public consultations, so how governments set up consultations with the public on various environmental policy issues and, and how these are structured in a way where the outcomes are predetermined. There's a there's a you know a, a whole kind of a legitimation exercise that goes on too in association with these policies. And I'm part of a, a group called the Corporate Mapping Project based at the University of Victoria in Canada that uh, has been tracing the influence and the, the power of the fossil fuel sector in Western Canada uh, in, as it is sort of diffused into civil society as well as directed toward the state and so I've been involved with that for the last six years. I've also been working on the, the roles of uh, innovation policy, uh, which are you know, determined mostly by governments in close consultation with leading sectors of the economy. Uh, they determine what the priorities for funding research and development will be, and, and those policies then shape the kind of research that's conducted in universities, and uh, the direction of that is very much uh, one of privatization industry, university partnerships, and I focused on it in the context of uh, Alberta universities and their relationship to the fossil fuel industry.
1: Okay. Interesting. All right. I think uh, I'm going to pass it off to Chris if he's got, my
3: Chris. He's got a question. Chris and Lori. Chris and Lori. This is Chris also. It's awesome. Such a privilege to be on here and get to talk with you guys. Uh, my, kind of my first. My first jump off point that I wanted to kind of discuss with you guys is, is the irony of billionaires leaving our planet and (laughs) and going into space uh, being that they're the ones that have really helped trash this planet. Like what, like we're at a point right now where, where we're discussing finding alternate planets to go try and start new places to live because of, of the, the corporate greed that has led to the degradation of our planet uh what what are your guys' thoughts on on billionaires going to space
0: yeah it's funny chris you raise that because i'm currently working on a second book with my colleague daniel nyberg and uh i was writing a chapter on corporate responses to climate adaptation and part of that sort of focus on geoengineering and direct air capture and stratospheric sulfur injection and all this sort of what we term creative self-destruction, so throwing the innovative capacities at the wrong sort of things which sort of double down on the bed of destroying our civilization. And at the end, I I just noticed all this media coverage of Bezos and um, uh, Branson and and Musk doing their sort of billionaire space race thing. And I thought, well, I'm going to put this at the back end of the chapter because it is the ultimate sort of expression of corporate climate adaptation. Let's just leave the planet because um, we can't be bothered with dealing with this... um, with the regulations and impediments upon us continuing to grow. And I think um, Bezos is actually, there's a quite good quote from Bezos somewhere in the media where he, he talks directly to the impediments, I think it's Musk as well, about growth, you know, that we can't have any impediments upon economic growth. This must continue. And so we have to look to space to continue this, which is completely bizarre and fanciful because um, even, you know, it's, it's technologically fairly unviable and it's space is a very hostile place to be and the idea that you're going to have some sort of mass exodus to space and all these rockets blasting, so that will totally tank the planet. So it's this bizarre, surreal, um, mad sort of response in some ways and it's it's justified and framed by these billionaires as we're doing something good for the planet because we're going to take all the nasty industry and put it out in space, which is, yeah, it's completely bizarre. But it's it's a good example of this magical thinking that you see amongst government leaders and corporate leaders to a a problem where there are technological solutions. We could, with good government policy, drive towards 100% renewable energy on a sort of a wartime mobilisation pace. This could be done, but the political imaginary doesn't allow that to happen. Instead, we we default to, you know, injecting sulfur into the stratosphere or blasting billionaires into space. It's all crazy stuff. Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah, yeah, and uh, it also, I think, speaks to the the nature of uh, the global economy and the incredible inequalities of wealth that we see in this sort of late stage of the financialization of capitalism and you know that you've got billionaires who well I should also add to what Chris said that they in addition to preparing their their alternative planet escapes. They've all got their bunkers somewhere like New Zealand or, or Costa Rica or Ecuador where they think they're going to escape, you know, the consequences of global warming. They really are ditching us. But the fact that they exist is part of the problem of why we're up where we are, you know, that, that wealth has been polarized in the way that it has. Uh, and governments have have permitted uh, corporate interests to have this much power over the entire planet.
1: That's an interesting point, Laurie, because something that we hear often, especially in the US, is the fact that we we want as as small a government as possible, as little government as control in our lives as, as as possible. But it seems that a consequence to that is it's like pick your poison, either it's gonna be government influence and control or corporate influence and control. And so I think that it's it's easy to punch up and and to say that the government is interfering too much. Without thinking about what the 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 uh, alternative to that is, which is, you know, if if there's not going to be government control, it's going to be corporate control, and there's going to be no regulations, you know, and and uh, these these companies would be would have little to no interest at all to to cut their carbon emissions because you know that would hurt their bottom line.
0: Just just on that, I think there is a bit of a um, a false sort of uh, distinction made between sort of government regulation and and corporate sort of influence over climate change. What we've currently got essentially is the result of 40 years of an ideology that really sort of came to power in the mid-70s, early 70s, a sort of focus on what's often termed neoliberalism, which promotes the idea that governments should step aside in markets where corporations can make significant profit. And, in fact, governments should facilitate corporations making major profit. But the flip side to that is there's massive re-regulation around um, the state intervening in pushing back against more democratic uh, civil sort of interventions. So the state actually acts as a protector for corporate capitalism. And the two are intertwined now where if we look at the big fossil fuel extraction, the new carbon frontiers like the tar sands in Canada or the big coal mines in Australia or the gas fracking that we're seeing everywhere, that's being facilitated by governments, federal, state, and local, at the behest of their corporate sponsors. So our, our sort of take on what's happened in the last forty years is the capture of government by corporate interests, and we we flip back to you know good old Antonio Gramsci's concept of hegemony, uh, and argue that it's the corporations now which are the dominant actors in, in economies, and they are they've captured governments, regulatory capture, and regulatory. Um, uh, provisions are being reframed in ways that allow corporations to make even more money despoil um, the environment to an even greater extent and and have really sort of um, undemocratic implications for citizens and communities
3: kind of expand as well so we have we have billionaires going to space and trying to escape the the degradation of the planet that they are causing, um, and we have governments encouraging uh, the the growth of the economy through um, finding new ways of of getting fossil fuels, um, and and at the same time, we had a president uh, before President Biden. We had a president that was a climate denier um, who was cutting funding in that department, while at the same time. Uh, He's doing this. His Department of Defense is turning around and talking about uh, how climate change is going to impact negatively impact uh, the United States and cause uh, it it causes, uh, you know, issues with uh, securing the United States. And so the Department of Defense was saying that climate change is real because we need to address it. And at the same time, we had a president who was saying that it wasn't real. So we see that. Not only is it these these governments on these state and local levels that are encouraging this, but when you have talking heads at the top uh, denying climate, I mean, how do you how do you
2: combat that?
0: Laurie, did you want to go?
2: Well, you know, I guess it depends on the context, and uh, you know, the United States has been through something really quite extraordinary with uh, the formation of the Tea Party movement and its takeover of the Republican Party. Um, the the scope of the creation of a of a base for uh, what I would call far right populism in the United States, which is characterized by what we call epistemological populism as well. You know, this idea that we don't need to listen to experts; experts have nothing to say. Every everyone's opinion is as good as the next person's opinion. Um, that that is a, an attitude cultivated at the base of these movements, um, and at the top, you have to to look. Uh, you know, at, at the nature of what really drives them, and the corporate elites again that are that have been involved with uh, with sustaining these movements and and producing them. So yeah, you know, in the United States is a, a somewhat um, shall we say a special special case of the people at the top um, who have access to means of mass communication, mass media to um, disseminate their their misinformation, uh, and then of course there's all the networks social media networks, which have operated to uh, feed into conspiracy theories and, and so on, which have then also infiltrated into, into Canada, which I could talk more about. Um, yeah, so I'm not sure. I mean, the, 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 the people at the top, yes, have a role in disseminating this kind of, uh, of view that um, the climate change is really a kind of Trojan horse for socialism uh, that, that we have no reason to believe the scientists, that the scientists have some mysterious interest in, in deceiving us, which has never really been you know, spelled yeah. out what that could be. Um, But that that situation, that context varies from one country to another and even within countries regionally, uh, you know, so who participates in it, what resources they have to perpetuate these um, myths and so on. It's it's quite different, I think, um, from one case to another.
1: Right. Well, and that's something that we, we speak about quite a bit is is pandering and pandering to these demographics. We call it the lowest common denominator. And it seems that conservatives do espouse the values of the free of free market capitalism so is it any coincidence then that it's it's also why conservatives aggressively deny man-made climate change and you know you mentioned conspiracy theories that we just last week spoke to uh somebody who's published on on conspiracy, research on conspiracy theories a great deal and yeah just speaking precisely about what you're talking about just the uh the toxicity of of that and how it it does divert people's attention in you know very detrimental ways so yeah i guess that would be my question is where 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 do you think that that correlation comes from of conservatives uh upholding the free market like a golden calf and at the same time denying man-made climate climate change or our influence on climate change
2: well again i think it it depends on the conservatives we're talking about because we're talking about the european far right you know they are hyper nationalist right and they have uh, linked their climate denialism to the idea of national sovereignty and not wanting to be dominated by you know global interest or global organizations or the european union uh, so there's an element um, there where they have, you know, articulated nationalism to climate denial. Uh, in the United States, there's a very, you know, as you say, there is a free market um, orientation that um, really focuses, I think, on on the idea that somehow movements like climate movement or discussion of systemic racism or in Canada decolonization that these movements are fundamentally about bringing in the big state. Uh, so in that sense, they just see them as some kind of socialist mm-hmm. or communist, uh, as I said before, like a Trojan horse sure. that really is a cover for something else. And that the climate crisis is a cover for, for, up, for up, uh, overthrowing overthrowing the existing system. And actually, they're right.
4: <laughs> yeah, and I'd like to point out, just for people who don't know, uh, American far right is way more far right than European or Canadian or really almost any other uh, far-right system.
3: Except the Middle East. Uh, they're, yeah. they're, rivaled, they're rivaled by the Middle East, I'd have to say.
0: Of countries are, that are on the
4: same level, I would say.
0: These are sort of political discourses that are wheeled out by the ruling class, or one of a better word, the political and corporate elites, mm-hmm. in order to obfuscate what's going on. I mean, it's, it's, it's the creation and defence of that hegemony these, that's what these political discourses of nationalism and the, the myth of the free market are used for, because if you look at the US, um, there's nothing free about most markets. They're highly oligopolistic. They're dominated by a few large corporations uh, and they've captured the state. So it's it's very, very different from Adam Smith's concept of a free market. Um, so these are sort of political myths, um, uh, imaginaries, which are used to... Uh, basically secure the power of ruling elites and and maintain that in the face of resistance. And so when you see the the climate strikes and and the big mass um, protests about climate action, that's what these myths are out there for to defend against. And just to give it, you know, our local perspective, you're talking about Trump and America and denial. Um, Well, I know you have it in Canada. We certainly have it in Australia. I mean, our current prime minister... Uh, who was then the Treasurer in 2017, came into the Houses of Parliament waving a lump of coal, uh, uh, waving this lump of coal in front of the, the opposition and saying, this is coal, don't be afraid, coal is good for humanity. So um, there's all of this sort of vaudevillian political denial, which is in the direct service of the vested interests, the big coal, oil and gas companies and maintaining that, um, that industry in the face of some pretty major market and technological changes that are, are now going on.
2: Yeah, if I could add to that. So, you know, in Alberta, of course, we have a government that has used a a version of nationalism to try to defend the oil and gas industry. Mm -hmm. And it's to say, you know, Albertans... It constantly reinforces these metaphors around, you know, oil is the lifeblood of our economy. Oil is the essence of our identity. Uh, If you don't support the oil and gas industry, you aren't really an Albertan. You are a traitor to your people. So it's a very populist uh, discourse in that sense. It's it's actually quite nativist. And it it makes an equation between the interest of some homogenized group, which is all Albertans, and the interest of the oil and gas industry. So we see that happening over and over again. Um, they claim to be neoliberals, but they're massively subsidizing the oil and gas sector. Um, but what I think is actually more of a concern, maybe outside of the United States, than, um, or actually now with the Biden government uh, in the United States as well, is not so much the climate denialists, right? The people who are out and out denialists. I think what, it is, it, what I'm really worried about is the um, influence of a kind of new climate denialism which takes the form of saying, yeah, we see that climate change is real. We don't deny that. We're not denying the science. We're gonna argue with the scientists. But uh, you know, we need to kind of, we're gonna need uh, oil and gas for decades to come. So we're gonna to have to keep searching for it and extracting it and uh, selling it, exporting it because the world continues to depend on this. It's our primary source of energy. And we will phase things out eventually, but they keep pushing off this into the future. Yeah. In the yeah. meantime, they say, um, and we can make the production of oil and gas uh, commodities cleaner. And this is the big discourse that operates in Canada. It's this clean energy discourse that says, "Well, we can make the extraction of bitumen just as uh, low carbon, or as uh, uh, we can match the carbon intensity of sources of." Of, uh oil from other places if we in- implement the right technologies like you know substituting solvents for water and steam assisted extraction or we uh capture we we have carbon capture and storage technology or we substitute biofuels for natural gas or you know so they're they're coming up with things to to say that they can make the extraction less uh polluting locally and uh, less greenhouse gas emission intensive But of course, what they always divert your attention away from is the fact that they want to continue to increase extraction and exports, and that this fuel will be combusted somewhere, and that the planet doesn't really care whether it's combusted in China or India or United States or or in Canada, right? So that's one aspect of this. And the other aspect is, so I, I mean, I kind of put this all under the umbrella to some extent of Prometheanism. This is a kind of Promethean discourse. Um, but the, the, the groups that are really influential right now are the think tanks connected to the corporations that are arguing for governments to invest massively in technologies to uh, like car- carbon capture and storage or, or uh, carbon, new, new uses of carbon. Um, in lieu of investing, state investment in the, what I would call the future economy, right? So in renewables, energy efficiency, water conservation, regenerative agriculture, public transportation, sustainable building materials, electrified public transportation systems. We're not investing in those areas massively, but continue to subsidize the oil and gas sector, um, particularly in the, in the implementation of, this, of these technologies and the infrastructures for them because of this argument that they make that they are indispensable and we can't do without them. and the climate crisis really, it, it's its there, but it's not so much of a crisis that we have to reduce emissions right now. We can push it off into the future and maybe use natural gas as a bridge fuel. So all of these things are part of a of a hegemonic strategy. Uh, and like Chris, I'm a Gramscian, so there you go. Um, hegemonic strategy to um, to really make the industry and its engineers and its economists and its accountants into the Agents of our salvation, hmm. <laughs> in, but in this process, really denying the nature of the crisis. Yeah, well, and that's- yeah, and that that form
0: of sort of soft denial um, is is essentially what we we pinched the term from Alex Steffen in San Francisco. Use this term, predatory delay, and I think that really captures it nicely because it's this: we recognise climate change, we need to take action, just not now. And so, all of these commitments to net zero emissions by 2050, and we're having a big political debate in Australia about whether we'll commit to that, whereas everybody else seems to be. It's 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 obfuscation because it's saying, yeah, we need to do something, but we can wait till twenty fifty. When in reality, if you're serious about net zero, you well, need to be cutting emissions right now because
2: yeah. it's well, just so there's this pushing it into the future. Zero. You know, they just tell us they'll be net zero by twenty fifty and we're supposed to trust them.
1: Right. Well you <laughs> But know,
2: these and... are these are the, the, the think tanks that I fear are very close to the Liberal Party in Canada. Something and so you know, it really has a big influence on on the government policy.
1: Something along with that to kind of localize the situation where Ricky and I are, at least, is uh, we we live in Weld County and it's the highest producer of of oil and gas in the state, uh, the biggest industry. And that's been going on for about a decade now. Just a lot of oil and gas uh, drilling has been going on. And in 2018, there was a bill that was voted on uh, to for more regulation on on oil and gas which would make it more difficult it would i think it was meant to put more space between these drilling sites and schools and and homes and the narrative that was pushed was one like what you're saying this is our lifeblood how you know we can't we can't do without it you know it's it we can't we can't afford to explore alternative energies right now and my thought is always well you know, a heroin addict also is addicted and that doesn't mean that he should be staying on heroin. And then secondly, it's the argument is always about jobs. And so it's always that um, an emotional appeal too. and that's where you'd even see all of the propaganda trying to vote against this initiative was, uh, you know, if you, if you support, uh, families and jobs and, and job creation then you need to you need to you know make sure that this regulation doesn't take place and and it's like yeah you know maybe it does affect jobs but uh you know that's that's part of human evolution too is like again getting ourselves out of that comfort zone
0: that's the point of hegemony creation in a sense you have to build those allegiances between quite varied communities and and build those discourses which combine them and so the jobs and employment and local communities thing is is very much part of that the other you mentioned drug addiction I just quickly throw this in the other discourse we see a lot here in Australia because we are the world's largest exporter of coal and gas in the world now um, is the drug dealers defense and we've had prime ministers and corporate leaders all the time been in meetings with you know CEOs of big um, resource companies and they say well look if we don't dig up the coal and sell it, somebody else will, and it's that classic drug dealer's defense. Oh, if we it's, don't it's sell not the same here. It's,
2: it's exactly, exactly.
0: Yeah. and I'm sure it's everywhere around the world. With fossil fuel executives saying, "But if we don't sell it, you know, our competitors will." So there's in, in the net balance, there's no big difference.
2: Oh, but um, we do have a we do have a nice little touch in Alberta. Which you might have heard, it might actually operate in Australia as well, is that our oil is ethical oil.
0: Oh, ethical oil! Yeah, I love that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Not only
2: <laughs> if well, we Trump sell used it to say else beautiful, will, clean coal. Isn't it better that people yeah. buy nice, polite Canadian oil
0: Liberal, Democratic instead oil. of
2: nasty, <laughs> you know, barbaric Saudi oil?
0: And, and those and, ads. Those and ads in fact, I, had. I
2: just saw yesterday that we have something that the Kenny government created in Alberta when it was elected called the um, Canadian energy center, which is by everyone else called the energy war room. And it has a large budget to do propaganda. And it just bought a whole bunch of billboards in New York city uh, to tell Americans that they really ought to be buying Canadian oil. And the image is that coming out of the the gas pump from, you know, like the gas station where you put the pump into your car, whatever that's called, the nozzle, Instead, that coming out of the nozzle are these little Canadian maple leaves. I knew
1: you were going to say that.
2: <laughs> maple I mean, syrup coming out. It is, it is really <laughs> appalling. Um, yeah, and I'm, I'm sure you, the New Yorkers are too, much too savvy to fall for it, and we just so. wasted 30 million. But on, on the question of um, the alliances made between corporations and their workforces, I think that is actually really important as a, as a factor which is slowing down and obstructing necessary policy. Um uh, because you know, these people vote and they mobilize and um you know it's possible that, that they have a big role in in influencing who gets elected and and, and uh and and it's that's not right. enough yeah, we've to say, you here
0: know, yeah, yes. We've had um, federal governments basically returned on the back of coal mining votes in Queensland. Yes. So that's what happened in the last federal election.
2: And when um, we see it um in rural Alberta. We did see it throughout rural Alberta as well as a factor in the re election of these pro about petro, petro parties. So I think it's it's not really sufficient to say, you know, economies change and sources of staples and commodities change over time and you're just going to have to suck it up. I think that what the left has been kind of lacking and afraid to do is, is just to say, look, we have a vision for an alternative model of development here. These are the bones of it. This is what we know we need to do. Um, this is how we can implement it and get really quite concrete and setting out those steps and talking about how they can be financed and so on so that people can see that it isn't just, oh, there'll be some transition. It leaves it all very vague. I mean, the, the term just transition has become really unwelcome in a lot of yeah. labor contexts just because it yeah. doesn't seem to say anything. And it it also kind of assumes that somehow you're gonna take people from one extractive sector and, and have them have lower paid jobs in, in some other industrial sector. Um, when, a, they may I not do know
4: Democrats. that, I'm sorry, yeah. uh, I do know that the left here, the de- Democrats mm-hmm. here have had uh, a program in place for a while that will take someone from coal mining and retrain them into a job that they pick, uh, several different jobs. One of them, I think, is uh, IT support.
0: The problem with the politics on the left, though, is that, um, and we keep talking about left party, I don't think the Democrats are a left party by any means, they're a more centrist party. Uh, in Australia, yeah, well they're as left party- as we've got <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, in Australia, our labour Party, which came from the trade union movement, um, has steadily over decades and decades moved further and further to the right, um, and it's now um, largely owned by the gas industry. so you've got both of our major parties supporting coal and gas, um, and so it's bipartisan support, and that's what I was talking about earlier in terms of mm-hmm. political capture. Uh, there is no viable sort of left progressive voice apart from our Greens party, which is small and will never win significant votes,
2: challenging know, fossil fuel energy. And we've had a, a something very similar to that again happen in Alberta with, the, you know, we had a, a four-year term of the New Democratic Party, which is our Social Democratic Party. Uh, and I won't go into all the, you know, explanation of how that happened after 44 years of Conservative Party rule. But when the NDP got in office, um, they really hesitated to bring in any kind of radical plan to make a transition and and to cooperate with the federal government to to do that. And instead they reproduced the same kind of discourse about oil being the lifeblood of our economy. They demanded federal support for the Trans Mountain Pipeline. Uh, the NDP Premier actually made support for a pan-Canadian framework on climate action conditional on, on support for more oil and gas pipelines. So you know we've had we, we have a captured state and it's it takes a lot um, it's uh, to to shift this uh, and I so far we haven't seen that um, that force sort of coming from within Alberta itself it's these kinds of changes have been more imposed on us from the outside by what's happening in the global economy and what's happened to the price of oil and so on and, and global efforts around climate change sadly
0: yeah and really we shouldn't be surprised by that i mean if you go back to marxist analysis 101 i mean the state is basically it's 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 a collection of interests designed to facilitate capitalism and the growth of capital profits so this sort of idea that we developed i guess post war that the state could be some sort of um regulator and controller of of capitalism it, it's it's there essentially to facilitate profit and to perhaps ameliorate the worst excesses where those excesses threaten the continuation of capitalism so this, this relationship of the state to capital in the sense we're returning back to the way it always was in some ways.
1: One argument that I've found that's come in handy for me the last couple of years, so Ricky and I are both in the Colorado Air National Guard, and I'm a public affairs specialist, so I do a lot of media relations and that sort of thing. And there's uh, an annual event called the Arctic Interest Council. I, I'm sh- sure neither of you are familiar with it. Uh, but what it what it addresses is the fact that there's so much melting going on in in the Russian territories where a lot of trade will take place. So with this happening, it's opening up a lot more channels for people like Russia that we don't necessarily want to, to move about as freely in that area to be able to. And so I find that that argument comes in handy, that even the military is taking it seriously enough to see it as a like a global, yeah, threat. Yeah, threat. Yeah, and in
0: fact, the the military forces worldwide in Australia, um, Europe, the US, some sections of the military community um, are much more aggressive on climate change, and they use this term threat multiplier. So where you're in parts of the world which are already geopolitically unstable, climate change through extreme weather events is just going to amp up those um, those risks. And so there's modelling around, you know, massive people movement, um, geopolitical shifts in sort of economic development Siberia and places, the Middle East, you know, um, the equatorial zones of the world are going to basically be uninhabitable by mid-century. What's what's going to happen when those people start to move? So there are some really, very real geopolitical security sort of mm-hmm. issues there. And the military, some sections of the military community are now sort of starting to plan and game, game plan around those sort of scenarios. Um, but it's almost sort of disaster capitalism stuff in a way because then with those... Those disruptions, there are new opportunities inverted commas for businesses to make money, especially if you're in the the uh, the weapons industry uh, and those sorts of things. So yeah. Well, and what's what, what comes in chance. so
1: handy in knowing that fact is that conservatives are by and large very supportive of the military, and this is something that's not commercial. It's it's the military, a government entity, and so I think that that kind of stymies people who would argue against climate change when you can show them evidence that the that even the military recognizes it as something that needs to be addressed sooner than later?
0: It's a, it's a framing you can use to try and, you know, win people over, I think. And there's a lot of frames you can use, depending on the community you're talking to or the people you're talking to. So, yeah, with conservatives, you can use that sort of geopolitical threat multiplier framing. With engineering folks, you can talk about eco-efficiency. Um, you know, there's a whole range of frames you can use to try and win people to the cause. Um but, you know, the reality of the geopolitical um, crisis which climate change will bring is is pretty scary stuff. And I don't see a sort of a, a bright side to that necessarily. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, what's, what's unfortunate is that we're even spending as much time as we are trying to address something that is, is pretty clear, is pretty evident. But we spend time addressing conspiracy theories and other things like this that are a complete waste of time. And, mm. you know... A lot of times I get criticism on from this podcast because people say, well, why don't you have a counter argument to this? Because I also don't like to have a counter argument that the sky is blue or that water gets you wet. You know, like at what point is are we just kind of wasting time and energy and resources? Mm -hmm. uh,
4: I also find that the right is extremely reactive. Right. So they're not going to do anything about this until we can start seeing. Um, Until I guess personally maybe more demonstrable that. proof that something bad is happening, I know you can already pre, you can already say, "Hey, look, we have hottest years on record. We have multiple hurricanes that are quite a bit larger than they were even a decade ago." You know, um, but still, uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know yeah. where you would how you would prove something like that to to, to these people.
3: I and I and I can. I can tell you, you guys, I used to be a conservative Christian and I was a, uh, a climate denier. If, if that's what you want to call it, but I was being a conservative Christian. I believed that God created the world. And so if he created the world, then he's the only one that could do that. And so, and I'm not like that anymore. Obviously I'm a, um, a sort of a militant atheist now, but, um, uh, I digress. Uh, the, worldview that I had and the the worldview that I believe that a lot of these people that are climate deniers within the United States have is that if God created the world, then, you know, from a religious perspective, then he's in control of everything. Like we can't destroy the planet. And so how do you get through to somebody who believes that so vehemently?
0: Yeah, it's, it's a, it's, there's a whole range of sort of comforting ideologies which can divert your gaze from the scientific reality or the physical reality even. I mean, there's lots of instances. We've done a number of case studies, of so-called climate change hotspots, coral reefs bleaching on the Great Barrier Reef or or, or, um, big storm cyclones and things, and you'd think the communities would then rise up and say, let's do something about it. But it's interesting how powerful some of these ideologies and discourses are that even people who see climate change firsthand right up in front of their face can create discourses which... Will continue, you know. Um, well, the climates always changed. What about the ice right. ages? that's that the that? go-to. We'll really have the same stuff.
1: Right. Yeah, that's the go-to argument. It seems from climate change deniers is that oh, the, you know, the climate always changes and we go yeah, through cycles, but <laughs> right. it's
3: cyclical. Cyclical is the word they use yeah. all the time. Yeah, but it does a Cyclical system. Yeah, it doesn't. have it's a
0: psychological defense. I think, in a sense, people deep down sort of get this, but they don't want to engage with it. For emotional reasons for their kids reasons whatever because it is pretty confronting when you get to the basis of climate science and you realize well there isn't much future for human civilization on our current trajectory this century and i have real issues around teaching this stuff with younger people because mm-hmm. on the one hand you don't want to put people into a situation of sort of eco-anxiety and and, and, and all sorts of issues and depression etc but on the other hand you don't want a bright side and say well everything's going to be sweet and don't worry um So psychologically, this is very confronting stuff. And I think a lot of the denial is people just saying, I can't deal with this. Um, I realize I'm to blame here. I'm going to push back and create a sort of an explanation, which is comforting to me and means I don't have to engage with this.
4: Well, man, Uh, when my kid was, they're 13 or 15 now, uh, when they're about 12, they sat down and they said, Dad, why did you have me? Mm -hmm. And I said, well, you know, uh, your mom and I wanted a kid. Uh, we wanted somebody to love us. We wanted a family. Yada, yada, yada. The normal answers, you know. And they said, "Yeah, but the world's gonna end."
3: <laughs>
4: it's like, well, uh, shit. Yeah, you're right.
2: <laughs> Struggle with the same the same issues with regard to teaching. Um, you know, seeing people come into classes already suffering from knowledge. <laughs> you know, suffering from their knowledge of of the climate crisis and
4: it's really uh, causing a uh, lot of anxiety and a lot of stress in people that i know that are younger
2: yeah well and and so many young people are are saying now that they're not going to have children because they don't see the point of subjecting their children to the kind of breakdown of civilization and what's what's ahead
4: i hear that all the time too
2: yeah and i think that to, to say that back to um i think it was chris's point that and I, I really do feel for you being, you know, in the United States, because I think so much of the, um, there's such a, a strong connection between the evangelical, uh, Christian churches and, and, the, and the right, you know, and, uh, that there's something, something in this that's organized. It's not just a coincidence, uh, that it makes it really difficult to have the kinds of conversations you need to have. And I mean that this that such the United States is such a highly religious country. Uh, you know, it's it makes it really difficult to have to, to make progress on anything. So and I, I guess I could say that in in Alberta there's also an overlap between uh, evangelical Christians and uh and the and the alt right to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um it's uh it's, it's an interesting phenomenon. It's, the, the networks are, are, are interconnected.
0: So, so the upside on that, mentioning the teaching and, and how do you engage with this psychologically, I think there is a point that I found this, that you get to when you confront the science and, and the reality of where we're going, that is almost liberating in some sense that, you know, in my teaching, uh, people do get pretty depressed, but I say, well, it's better to know about it and then it's better to think about what you can do about it. And so a lot of my students get politically quite active on this, um, in NGOs, in, you know, groups like 350.org and, and school climate strikes, extinction rebellion. So, so they're, they're shifting their angst towards uh, action, which they see as meaningful in terms of trying to shift the politics. And sure, it's incredibly tough. And nobody would deny it. it's very unlikely that that will change things significantly. But at least it gives you courage and hope to try and change things for the better rather than just sort of sitting in a pit of despair or, or worse, I guess sitting in a position of complete denial that there's nothing going on and that's i think why a lot of these people are in denial it's very comforting to just think well i don't have to worry about that it's not an issue um so yeah that's where i see some some upside is in trying to engage people with this issue and then when they realize the issue is real they then shift the swords trying to change the situation through their own sort of individual and political actions are we you know, right?
2: Run- i agree that's what i, I do as well as you know i Personally, it's my way of surviving. It's to keep being an activist on this because I don't know how else to survive. I would sink into such despair, mm. um, and also I I spend a good part of my my teaching talking about the the solutions and the alternatives. You know, there really there really are ways to rein in um, global warming not that we can reverse what's already up there and what's already going to unfold, but we can have an an impact on how bad it's going to get. And we can um, prepare ourselves to to cope with with some of the um, instability, the breakdown of of these ecosystems that's going to be happening. Uh, And we can also think about how we can build societies where people can actually live better lives. they've lived in the past and if we have no alternatives and we have no hope for you know possibility of change then really it is game over so so would either
1: would either of you say that we're at a runaway like the effects of climate change or runaway rates right now where we're not we're at a point of no return or is it more of a a factor of we're just digging ourselves a hole that's getting harder and harder to Get ourselves out of
0: probably the latter. I mean, we're at 1.1 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels of warming, according to the latest IPCC report. Um, and we've got carbon concentrations in the atmosphere we probably we haven't seen for about three million years, so well before humans evolved biologically. Uh, you know, the current commitments by nations and the Paris Agreement get us to somewhere around sort of two to three and a half degrees C. But very unlikely that nations are necessarily delivering on those. So yeah, it's bad. It's too late to avoid climate change. It's already here. Um, but as as Laurie made the very important point, what the political message now is to try and minimise the harm, try and yeah. avoid greater than two or two point five or three or four, because where we're heading is a world yes. of four degrees C. Yes.
2: I agree. And we
0: need to sort of minimize the harm we need to sort of we're racing in a car towards a cliff edge with our foot on the accelerator we need to take a foot off the accelerator and start to hit the brakes um and there will and be damage do, and, but and we doing need to minimize that is that.
2: and doing that is not all negative right doing that has yeah. tons of 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 social benefits as, as well as you know existential
1: ones <laughs> well when you're talking about job creation, I think that the obvious thought at least that I have is that this is a new uh, outlet for job creation with yeah. you know, what was proposed with the Green New Deal and that sort of thing. Um, so, yeah, a yeah. massive
0: transition to renewable energy, solar, wind, lithium-ion, battery storage at sort of huge industrial scale, uh, analogous to what we currently do with fossil fuel energy, all the massive yeah. state subsidies that that gets. Um, it could completely reinvent the way the world gets its energy and the way the world operates. Now, we'll still be living with rising sea levels and extreme weather events. Um, but that's better than where the alternative uh, path we're heading down now. Uh, we keep missing the exit ramps, and we've got to take one of those exit ramps pretty soon. Um, mm-hmm. Otherwise, it's just going to get worse and worse.
4: The big issue and, and the, the pessimistic, pessimistic answer to that is that, uh, you know, what we're going to run into there <clears> – <throat> I agree with you. That's what we need to do.
3: <clears throat>
4: Sorry. But what we're going to run into is the fact that, at least in America – All of our politicians are owned by lobbyists. All the lobbyists are owned by corporations. Those corporations and those lobbyists are going to convince our 85, 90-year-old senators uh, who don't know shit about how the real world's working right now anyway, uh, that it's actually not in their best interests. And they're the ones who are making the decisions. And they keep getting reelected due to gerrymandering and other Mm -hmm. other stuff like that. So how do we take those exit ramps?
2: So – You know, I started working on environmental policy back in the early 1980s. And one of the first things I figured out was that we weren't going to achieve any of our environmental objectives without democratization, without political reform. Because the huge obstacle to getting anywhere is that the political institutions we have are profoundly undemocratic and they continually reproduce these imbalances of power. For the same, the same interests get to monopolize power all the time. You, you know. So one of the first struggles for the environmental movement is to change the system of funding of political parties in the United States. Right, and it's a really hard battle. But these these battles around democratization are so fundamental to our survival.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. We have got the same problem in Australia in terms of political donations and lobbyists. And, and ownership
3: of the political process. I, I just wanted to kind of hear some solution-based stuff uh, with you guys. I mean, I've, I've heard, uh, you know, there's, there's so many things that we could be doing that could literally change everything immediately. Like, and why, you know, what are those solutions and what are the biggest obstacles to getting to those solutions?
0: Yeah, well, one of the big things here is a shift towards renewable energy because Australia has a lot of sun and a lot of wind, and we could be a sort of renewable energy superpower instead of being a coal and gas superpower. But there is this huge political resistance to it. It requires basically government to lead with industry policy and subsidies and direction to encourage those industries to really ramp up at massive scale. We could be exporting DC electricity to Indonesia from solar farms in the the northern parts of Australia, um, we could be, you know, uh, exporting green hydrogen to Japan and China and places instead of coal and gas, uh, and we could produce hydrogen, you know, completely renewably through solar energy. Um, we've got massive political resistance to any of this happening, very similar to the U.S. and Canada, because the vested interests, the Woodside's and the Santos's, the big coal gas companies, don't want that to happen. Um, so, yeah, technologically, um, this could happen. There's there's interesting sort of developments occurring which uh, which highlight how this could develop. We've got pilot plans and things going on. But there's just this roadblock politically um, fighting this.
2: I guess where um, you are, both of you, it's, or all of you, it's much warmer than, than here, although it's unseasonably warm here at mm-hmm. 22 degrees September 27th we have got
4: 81 freedom degrees here in the garage. <laughs>
2: oh,
3: dear. And, freedom.
2: Oh and Alberta, Alberta has already, where I am in Edmonton, we've already uh, reached an average temperature increase of two degrees. Wow.
0: At our, altitude,
2: uh, our latitude, yeah.
0: yeah. Laurie, were you affected by those fires earlier in the year?
2: By the smoke. Ah. The, the smoke was for about three weeks of the summer were uh, were difficult. Um, and the yeah, la- like it's just, the whole...
0: West it's just coast been of the U.S. is on fire, right?
2: It's just been every every summer almost for mm-hmm. the last five years.
1: Well, last uh, summer, this time last summer, Colorado was like basically yeah. the whole state was on fire, and I'd never—I've lived here my whole life. I've never seen anything like that before. It was terrible. The sky was orange for like two two and a half months. I've never seen that before. It was crazy. Yeah, But you saw what
0: happened it happen in Australia um, in twenty twenty.
1: Yes, yeah, that's right. I just you
2: know, and just watching. The world burning up, you know, Australia, Siberia, yeah. California, the west coast of Canada, the interior, it, Brazil. I mean, back in on. it's just utterly painful, it's so painful.
0: I think you're... Yeah, I- there's some interesting literature um, by some researchers who study the so-called pyrocene. So they argue the Anthropocene should be renamed the pyrocene to do with age of fire. I don't know if I buy it, but the, the research is pretty interesting in terms of... Um, what we'll see in the future around wildfires. It might just it be the logistics to
2: go directly to pyromaniacs, doesn't it?
1: Chris, did you and you have something? I, I
3: just I just want to ask because I feel like uh, you know, we have a couple of, of experts on here and and people who study this. What it, what does like what does 2050 look like if we don't do anything and we continue on current trends? Good boy. Yeah.
0: Um, I got to ask Something similar about, when was it? When did Trump come to power? I can't remember now. 2016. <laughs> 2016. Yeah. 2016. So our book had just come out. So it was late 2015. We just had the Paris climate thing. And um, we were asked by a radio show to imagine a future world, you know, 10 years or eight years into two terms of Trump. And we thought, um, we'll really push it out. know, we'll go for the most outrageous things that could never possibly happen. You know, oil drilling in the in the oceans off New York and opening up of national parks to oil and gas and, um, you know, what we thought were really crazy stuff stacking the regulatory authority. Of course, he did all of that and more. Yeah. So um, we, we lowballed that one by a big way. But 2050, look, um, there's various scenarios I could paint. Um, I, my own belief at this stage is we will... Exceed two degrees C, despite mm-hmm. you know lots of hand wringing and attempts by IPCC and governments to say they're going to do something. I think we will. I think nations will respond in different ways that we shift to renewable energy at a fairly significant scale, but it will be insufficient to sort of avert the the locked in emissions trajectories that we've got. So we're going to go way beyond two C. We're going to see fairly extreme um, weather events for a whole range of varieties. There'll be instances of what I would term disaster capitalism, to quote Naomi Klein. Um, So, yeah, I think it's going to be pretty rugged by 2050.
1: What role do you see overpopulation playing in this this problem? Do you think that we're experiencing overpopulation? And is it just going to get worse as people are moving away from the coasts and more inland?
0: Uh, Well, by overpopulation, I mean, globally, population is starting to trend down a bit. Um, But the problem is the level of affluence and consumption that more and more people want to have, which is, you know, logical in a sense. You know, if you're in a developing country and you see how people in the US and Australia live, you want to have that sort of lifestyle. Um, And so we've got this expansion of consumption and affluence, what someone here calls affluenza, uh, as a desirable state. And the reality is most of the emissions are produced by 1%, 5% of the global population, the high emitters. Um, but uh, the the economic ideology is we can all live like this. We can all um, have these levels of consumption, and clearly the planet can't, you know, allow that. Can't um, function with that sort of level of consumption. So the problem is this continued imaginary of continued consumption and growth, and driven by fossil energy, yeah. and that will push us towards that sort of fairly disastrous. Well, and feature, that brings I think.
1: one more thing to mind: is this idea of late stage capitalism—are you familiar with that term, either of you? Yes. Um, do you believe that that's where we're at right now, where we're kind of experiencing? And in, uh, Lori, I kind of discovered you from a piece that you wrote called "The Limits of Capitalism." So, do you think that there we are experiencing the the full potential of capitalism at this point? And is I made the the I what I said earlier is that you can't grow outwardly and upwardly in a finite space, and that's the best way that I can kind of conjure that image. Do you think that that's kind of where we're at right now is that we're experiencing the limits of capitalism?
2: Well, there are a lot of debates around, around this question. Um, you know, can capitalism survive the climate crisis and in what forms, right? Um, so, you know, you can imagine different scenarios here. Uh, optimistically, the best one would be that, in fact, we realize that capitalism is inherently in conflict with ecological sustainability and that we have to develop new kinds of economies and societies we, we cannot continue ones driven by endless accumulation of profit and the search for new commodities and and endless consumption and right, driving consumption right, that these are you know we have capitalism has generated contradictions of various kinds but we are really at, a, at an existential crisis point it's hard to see um, capitalism overcoming for various reasons yeah. however people have said you know that the capitalism is nevertheless capable of commodifying new technologies as well and renewable energy uh sources so they don't have to be community-owned they don't have to be you know democratically controlled. maybe there can be new monopolies forming around the the technologies, the energy systems of the future, um, the commodification of water, the commodification of air, the, you know, uh, we could have even more extreme and authoritarian forms of capitalism than, than exist today. So that would be the, the dark picture, right? Interesting. And I think, you know, ultimately what we end up with is is going to be determined by our ability to to act collectively, to organize collective action. Um, you know, it's not going to be determined simply by types of technologies. So yeah, it's not a it's not a great answer, but um right. yeah, I well, mean how how I feel about this is it depends sure. on the moment I
1: well, I, I, hope-
2: I agree with Chris that you know we're headed now certainly for three degrees and possibly four. And in that world, um, you know, the planet really can't sustain ten billion people you right. can yeah. so what does that mean i mean what does that mean for for millions and millions and millions of people yeah um, well
1: it seems like it's often just out of sight out of mind or like chris had mentioned a while ago about well we'll push it to 2050 or we'll push it to a later date we'll push it to this date and yeah um i
2: and think, think we're seeing a lot faster than was predicted a lot of a lot of developments mm-hmm. and they're going to be biofeedback effects sure. from those and
1: all right. Well, Dr. Lori Adkin and Christopher Wright, I hope this wasn't too depressing for you, but... <laughs> I'll deal with uh, it every day. Yeah, that's... Hey,
2: my other areas are childcare and...
1: <laughs> but, <laughs> and but the some... far
2: right. I study the far right. So you can see how oh, delightful man. my life is. Right.
1: Some, <laughs> so it's like positive, dealing with children in, in every aspect. The far right okay. and actual children. Sorry, Chris, go ahead. Yeah,
2: yeah you know, the, the difficulty of getting action on childcare, <laughs> you know... I was was
3: just going to say that a positive is I did read that the largest growing field um, for youth going into college is uh, creating a sustainable environment and it's uh, a a fast growing field and a lot of young people are dedicating themselves to that. I know uh, we discussed a lot of people, a lot of younger, uh, the younger generation says that they don't want to have kids because what's the point, but there are a lot that are saying, you know, I'm, I'm maybe not going to have kids, but I'm going to devote myself to trying to change uh, this equation and trying to balance things back out and doing everything in my power. And I think that's what we need is that, that younger generation pushing for that and helping us to elect officials like uh, a Bernie Sanders that comes in and really wants to make an actual change in the way we're doing
2: things. So that is such a good point because it, you know, I would say the two things that have given me the most hope in the last Ten years have been, first of all, the I don't know more movement, you know, that seeing this, the indigenous climate movement really take the leadership of environmental movements around the world, certainly in Canada. And secondly, the rise of this youth movement, you know, Fridays for the future strikes, you know, young people get it, they get it. And we have to also recognize the importance of teaching that's in the school system and recognize that the that uh, the carbon capitalist interests are basically trying to control what children are taught in schools. They're still trying to determine science curriculum. They're still trying to keep climate, you know, science from being taught in schools. This is a, you know, Gramscian, this is a war of position on absolutely every front, everywhere you look, right? Um, But the fact that these kids are learning about climate change in elementary school is, I think, a big part of why we're seeing them mobilize like this. Yeah. Um,
1: well, I think that a lot of people, unfortunately, you do just have to write off as a lost cause. And I'll make an, a comparison: it's a moot point, a moot argument to try to convince people, or to try to expect change out of people who don't see this as a problem in the first place, like who don't think that climate change is an issue, or that it's it's a conspiracy theory, or that it's not that big a deal. Like those people, I I do feel unfortunately are sort of a lost cause, and hopefully the next generation behind them. Will kind of fill in those gaps. But yeah, we'll see. To be determined.
2: Everything's at stake for them. You right. Know? Sure. So.
1: Absol- absolutely. All right. Well, thank I'm you a both.
2: 20 year old son, so uh, who's active in the climate movement. And uh, it's just so hard. It's just so really heartbreakingly hard. Sure. And um, I said to my own class recently, um, I don't think eco-anxiety or climate anxiety is the right term here. For me, something much closer is anguish. It's real grief. And it's maybe something my generation feels in a unique way because I think I'm in the last generation of people who can remember the planet Mm -hmm. before the effects of global warming. You know, um, they could go out and not worry about skin cancer and could swim in the rivers and could... Uh, appreciate nature and wildlife without simultaneously feeling stricken with grief by the knowledge that they're disappearing. I mean, I think we're the last generation to know that. Chris
1: and I were kids together and I vividly remember there being a lot more of a rainy season in Colorado. Now, Colorado is just so, by June, like Colorado is just so, just a crisp, dry, and having a lot more snow as well. And so just my own personal observation like that, you know, I, I I think I'm younger than you, but I think that you know that's that's a vivid thing that I recall too. So,
2: yeah, remembering the glaciers that we saw when I was a kid in right. our holidays, they'll be gone in ten years. Yeah,
1: I I did want to make sure that we just uh, were able to let both of you plug your websites and tell us about any any upcoming events or or presentations or anything that you, that, that we can look forward to. So if Chris, if you want to go ahead.
0: Yeah, sure. So um, uh, I'm currently writing a, a book with my colleague, Daniel Nyberg, which is sort of 10 years follow up on our first book from 2015. And it's very much focused on corporations and climate change and focuses on this uh, these three themes of the sort of mitigation, adaptation and suffering. So it's very much focused on the sort of stuff we've been talking about today, actually. Um, I have a blog called Climate People and Organizations, which sort of allows me to spread the word on stuff we've been writing and researching op-eds interviews we do stuff like this which i will do um and i'm very active on social media on twitter and and facebook and stuff around climate change and political economy so always keen to reach out to others
1: excellent and laurie what about you
2: oh well i'm as i mentioned part of the corporate mapping project which is wrapping up and it has published an amazing amount of work over the last six years (laughs) most recent thing is a large well is a, a collection of, of pieces in a book called Regime of Obstruction, which talks about the different ways in which the oil and gas industry has been obstructing action on climate change in Canada. And it looks into all kinds of areas like you know elementary school, education curriculum, what's happening in the universities, what's happening in lobbying and corporate elite networks, uh, the role of uh, Indigenous resistance and state strategies to to dampen that down. Um, so there's a lot of interesting work that you'll find on the website of the Corporate Mapping Project. Uh, my own, uh, as I said, recent research has been on, um, the, on the role of petro-universities, what I call petro-universities in, in Alberta, uh, which is, of course, you know maybe really popular. And I might... Um, I uh, might be starting a blog um, after I retired <laughs> at the time. Uh, we did start a climate action coalition at the university here last year, but then COVID happened and it kind of uh, became quiet for a while. So eventually that'll start back up okay. and uh, we have a big divestment thing happening across the country. Um, yeah, we just keep doing what we can uh, wherever where we, we are.
1: Where can we find you online, your social media?
2: Uh, I'm on, on Twitter um twitter is my public site yeah okay. facebook is, is a private more of a private site it's not a public site so for me um but twitter i'm I'm pretty active on Twitter. okay
1: yeah i did find you on facebook and i i was gonna tag you but i was like i think this is her personal account so i just <laughs> became friends with you instead
2: yeah it's <laughs> it's not a public facebook sure
1: account. okay well thank you both <laughs> very I, i'm sorry go ahead I have, yeah if
0: you guys um you know, put this out there, it'd be good to cross promote it on, on my social media as well. So yeah, I would let love know that. Where, where I can find you. Yeah, that would be great. Yeah, that
3: would be
1: Chris
2: amazing. has been writing these amazing books. It's, uh, mm-hmm. it's great work.
1: Yeah, that's, and it's very timely too. All right. Well, thank you again, both very much. I appreciate your time. I know your time is valuable. So um, it was an honor yeah. having both of no, you. Know. Thank you. Great very fun much.
0: and great to meet you, Laurie, and great to meet you guys. And yes. um, look forward to seeing the final result. Absolutely.
1: Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Thanks for doing this. Yeah. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you, guys. All the
0: best. See you. All right.
2: It's the same. My internet connection is unstable, so I'm going to close my video. Not okay.
1: Not be unfriendly. No, no. No, oh, it's fine. I'm still not even wearing a shirt, so. (laughs) I took mine off just in solidarity. Oh, thank you.